and welcome back to another episode of the Ghastly Podcast with me, Joanna McNulty and Nicholas Hall. And today we're going to be carrying on our meta horror series with an exploration of the 2007 film Funny Games, which is actually a shot for shot remake of the director Michael Haneke's 1997 film Funny Games, except this time in English and with mainly American actors. And Funny Games is a very interesting example, I think, of the meta horror genre, not least because obviously in this case it's quite literally a shot for shot remake of another horror film. I think it is going to pose some really interesting questions for us about things that we've already been kind of discussing over the past few episodes about the ethics of horror and violence in media and so on, and kind of the role that the audience has in constructing the meaning of a horror film. There's someone here. Hello. Sorry to disturb you, I'm staying next door. Please, come in. Wow, that's a really great set of clubs. Mr. Farber. What? You want to call someone? An ambulance or, or the police? Why are you doing this? Have a seat, please. I'm Paul. We're gonna make a bet now. You bet that you'll be alive tomorrow at nine o'clock and we bet that you'll be dead. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Catch the tiger by the toe. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. <laughs> Why don't you just kill us? You shouldn't forget the importance of entertainment. Funny Games opens with a married couple, George and Anne Farber, played respectively by Tim Roth and Naomi Watts, driving to their bucolic lakeside holiday home with their son, who's also rather confusingly called George, but referred to as Georgie for the sake of coherence, and then their dog. As they pass by a neighbour's house who they're planning to play golf with the next day, they notice them on their front lawn, accompanied by a pair of unknown young men, dressed in white, resembling golf caddies, and we later find out that these men are called Peter and Paul. They call over to their neighbours as they pass by in their car, who are strangely unresponsive at first, and ask the husband Fred to help carry their boat out onto the water that afternoon. Fred agrees and soon turns up with one of the young men in white, the one called Paul. So while the two Georgies, father and son, set up their boat on the jetty at the end of the garden, Anne prepares salad in the kitchen. Peter, the other man in white, turns up at the door asking, quite strangely, for four eggs out of the blue to take next door, and Anne obliges at first. After dropping the eggs, Peter then asks Anne for more, and she complies, although visibly a little irritated. Peter accidentally, in quotation marks, breaks Anne's mobile when he swipes it into the kitchen sink, and after Anne has given him four more eggs, she asks for him to leave. Fair enough. Just as she thinks she's got rid of him, Paul, the other guy, then turns up with Peter in tow, who has allegedly broken the eggs yet again after Lucky, their dog, jumps on him, apparently. Paul introduces himself and mentions rather strangely that he forgot about the dog, whatever that means. He spies George's expensive golf clubs propped up in the hallway and insists on trying out the driver in the garden. 
Now, Anne is starting to lose it at this point and just sighs, letting him do what he wants, but by no means happy to have these two strange young men hanging around who seem to be inviting themselves into her house and helping themselves to their possessions. It reminded me a little bit of Mother in that sense when you've got all those people just like shoving their way into the house. When you have poor Jennifer Lawrence running around the house like crazy trying to stop people from breaking the sink, etc. It's giving you that kind of vibe, basically. Now, out on the jetty at the same time, George's junior and senior overhear Lucky barking relentlessly and call for him to be quiet. They hear Lucky whine all of a sudden, and the barking then strangely tails off. Now, back indoors, Paul returns with the club when Anne just cracks, demanding that the two men leave and attempting to manhandle Peter out of the door. They feign a kind of self-righteous bewilderment as if unable to understand why they're being told to go, and they're quite disgruntled. The two Georges turn up, and then Anne asks her husband to make them go, passing him the last of the eggs in the carton and storming off into the adjacent room. George Sr. then attempts to defuse the situation, but is angered when Paul threatens that he'll break George's eggs if he doesn't give the carton back to Peter. Now, George slaps Paul, and Paul retaliates by breaking one of George's legs with a golf club. Nasty stuff. Now, the family are then taken hostage and a strange sequence of games take place, anchored by a bet made by Paul that the three of them will all be dead by nine o'clock the next day. Now, Anne is forced outside by Paul on a hunt for their missing dog. When she opens the boot of their car, the animal's lifeless body flops out onto the driveway, clubbed to death by Paul. Now, back in the house, Paul holds a pillowcase around the couple's son Georgie's head, threatening to hurt him unless George Sr. asks Anne to strip naked. So she does so, and after she has done it, Georgie takes advantage of a momentary scuffle between the couple and the two young men to run out of the room and exit the house through his bedroom window. He flees next door to the neighbour's house by wading through the shallows of the lake at the bottom of the garden. Paul pursues him into the property, where Georgie finds bloody corpses and a shotgun on the floor. And when Paul corners Georgie, the child's got the shotgun and he pulls the trigger, only for the gun to not fire. Back at the house, Anne has made another attempt to escape, but has been unsuccessful. Paul instructs Peter to start a new game, where he is to count out a member of the family and then shoot the one who is left not counted out. Peter allegedly misunderstands and then shoots Georgie dead, the boy, while Paul makes a sandwich in the kitchen. Paul returns and after lightly chastising Peter, the two men seem to then withdraw from the house entirely, leaving the couple to gather themselves after the violent, unmotivated murder of their child. On the edge of despair, Anne and Georgie manage to steal themselves to plan their escape. George is still suffering from his broken leg and remains at the house on this account, attempting to dry the unresponsive mobile with a hairdryer. Anne, meanwhile, runs out onto the road to try to get help from passing vehicles, only to accidentally hail down her assailants, who then take her back to the house. Now in the living room, Paul forces Anne to recite a prayer but she manages to take an opportunity to snatch the shotgun used to kill her son from the coffee table and fire a cartridge into Peter's stomach, which kills him immediately. Paul is shocked by this and he beats Anne with the stock before grabbing the television remote and pausing the actual film itself. He rewinds to just before Anne attempts to grab the gun and is able to prevent her from doing so this time. He then shoots and kills George. By this point, it's morning and the three embark onto the lake in the father's boat Anne is gagged with tape and her limbs are tied. She attempts to escape once more, using a kitchen knife in the bottom of the boat to cut through the rope that binds her hands together. She's caught doing so, and moments later unceremoniously tipped backwards off the edge of the boat as Paul and Peter discuss some kind of astrophysics. 
The two young men dock at the Thompsons Lake House, who were introduced earlier in the film as family friends of the Farbers. The cycle is shown to begin all over again when Paul asks kindly for some eggs. So, Joanna, mm-hmm. if Hanukkah made this film in 1997, why did he decide to remake it again in 2007, shot for shot? Literally shot for shot. I didn't actually think it was going to be shot for shot. Well, but from what I've read, it seems that he actually always originally wanted to make an American film. He always envisioned this script and this production as being American, but he was essentially kind of forced by circumstance and budgetary concerns, etc., to film it in Austria and in German. And I think perhaps the reason why, when he's able to, he wants to remake it in English in an American mm. context is perhaps because, obviously, as we've already been discussing, kind of the meta-horror aspects of the film and kind of its commentaries on the role of like violence in media mm. perhaps make the most sense or at their most potent in an American context rather than an Austrian one. But I'm not actually 100% sure on that. That's just my theory from what I know about mm. the reason why. Panica is a director who he's known for making very disturbing films, very um, uncomfortable films to watch. And I've only ever seen these two funny games films. I haven't seen, for example, The White Ribbon or Amour, which were both winners of the Palme d'Or. Yeah, I haven't Crazy. seen his other films either, actually. But he definitely has a relation. Uh, sorry, he definitely has a reputation um, as a director who's capable of discussing incredibly um, uncomfortable topics with a real sense of viscerality. And I think that can definitely be said for funny games. And it relates crucially back to an essay that Hanukkah wrote himself about media and violence. It turns out that he's an incredibly passionate proponent of the idea and the theory that media depicts violence and then engenders real life instances of violence. And I suppose that view is, in a sense, quite controversial now, would you say so? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's definitely becoming increasingly unfashionable. It's very... Well, obviously, the whole main debate over the role of violence in media and its effects on society, kind of as we've already discussed in previous episodes, um, especially with film, kind of took place in the 1980s and then kind of mm. bled over into video games in the noughties. And now that's kind of all been forgotten about entirely um, in terms of trying to find ways of explaining violence through the creation of, say, for example, online communities as opposed to media exposure so Mm. it is quite an unfashionable view these days i would say but he definitely wholeheartedly believes that as we get sort of normalized to these depictions of really intense almost quasi pornographic instances of violence Mm. and bloodshed and gore we become desensitized and then it allows for such acts to then occur in real life and the 1997 funny games version is um definitely representative of that ideology in the sense that it is trying to engage the viewer actively in the observation of genuine violence on screen rather than attempting to, as I guess you could say Cabin in the Woods did, hmm. uh, flatter the viewer or allow for the the viewer's blameless voyeurism uh, whilst consuming the film. 
So I suppose in opposition to what you see in Cabin in the Woods, where of course there's this meta commentary in the sense of taking apart tropes and the idea of horror and the idea of violence and what it does for the viewer, you still have acts of violence portrayed within the sort of cinematic language of the genre. Yeah. So there is an aspect of pandering going on. There is. And I also think with Cabin in the Woods, like you say about flattering the viewer, there is kind of this sense, I think, of like asking you, once you recognise the tropes, to kind of participate with it in this kind of deconstruction of the genre, but not in the sense really of examining your own kind of, through, say, for example, attachment to violence and your own participation in mm. the voyeurism of violence, but rather like a more detached viewpoint of the film mm. that you get to kind of divorce yourself from and kind of just take a more like intellectual position of like oh haha yeah that's so true yeah we do have all those tropes haha yeah and here we are all making here here here's you the director and here's me the viewer as well and together we're deconstructing these tropes and we're all having a great time doing it there's no like actual request really for the viewer to kind of look in on themselves mm, mm. it's not hard work going on well no. all, as, as Haneke would like to envision the hard work of funny games isn't present in in the work of cabin in the woods where it almost descends into this is not you know this is not me throwing shade at cabin in the woods but it almost descends into a kind of where's wally at the end where you're just like yeah it's like, like you know oh, how yes. many references can you spot how many monsters who are iconic yeah, and key to the genre scream. that one's from nightmare on elm street exactly that one's from yeah. there's hellraiser yeah exactly so in that sense it's this sort of there's there is an element of flattery going on and in cinema in general, mm. you do have this voyeuristic relationship between the film that's being watched and then the one who's watching the film. And I suppose what Hanek is trying to do in his theorization and with these two films um, is land the blame squarely at the feet of the viewer um, mm. and have them recognize the fact that they are engaging with real violence this time in in the really gritty depiction of 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 the suffering of this family at the hands of these two psychopaths how would you say then that the narrative beats of the film and kind of the way the film is shot contribute then to this almost accusatory address mm. to the viewer well first and foremost you have instances where Paul breaks the fourth wall. And for example, when Anne, Naomi Watts, is hunting for the body of their dog, well, she doesn't know its body yet, but yeah. <laughs> Paul then turns around to the camera and gives a direct look at us, the audience. And at that point, we don't actually know that it's us, the audience, because we can suppose that maybe Peter is with him. But then we realize in the next scene that Peter is actually still in the living room with the other hostages. So it's quite a powerful moment that you don't really expect from such a intensely realistic film, because it is in itself an act of stylization to break the fourth wall, which is ironic because Hanukkah is trying really hard to bed the viewer experience within this sense of relentless realism mm. and a complete lack of stylization. But people have pointed out that the very fact that he engages these devices is an act of stylization in itself. So for example, there's a 2016 article by Daniel Pogorski mm. that tries to argue that Hanukkah achieves the very opposite of what he actually intended with Funny Games. So 
So he argues that the interventions of Paul with the audience actually work to disengage the viewers rather than point the blame squarely at their feet, which I think is very interesting Mm. because there have been articles, for example, the 2020 film magazine article by Jacob Hayes sides more with Hanukkah in that the film manages to show you real violence. He manages to strip away that level of stylization and almost kind of transcend the the actual text nature of the film itself to show us real violence. I think something that's so interesting about the question of whether we're being shown real violence or not is the fact that a lot of the time, in fact, I think nearly all of the time, correct me if I'm wrong, the actual acts of violence take place off screen. Even, say, for example, in the bit where they kind of kneecap up um, George with the golf clubs, the entire time the frame is on Tim Roth's face. It's not on his knees. It's not on the impact of the metal with his knees. And then obviously when little Georgie gets shot, mm. we all hear all that happening in the background while Paul's in the kitchen. And we don't actually see kind of the fallout of that until we get to like cut to the blood spatters on the wall. Mm. And even then at the end, when Anne is pushed off the boat, we don't, you know, we don't see her drown. We don't see her struggle. She's just pushed off Mm. and then she's literally off camera and it's moved on from. And so I think that's also something that's really interesting in terms of Hanukkah's vision in the sense that, yes, this is a film which does depict very severe violence, but also at the same time, I think that's a really interesting way of simultaneously kind of denying the viewer perhaps kind of the blood, guts and gore that they want, even if they don't necessarily realise that they want it, it does prompt in the viewer some kind of appetite for something just a little bit more, just a little bit harder that might come later. And at the same time, I think it also allows him to deflect perhaps. Someone could say, oh, well, how can you as the director claim to be kind of, you know, holding a mirror to the role of violence in media and its kind of effect and its normalisation when you yourself have essentially created a piece of art that kind of self-congratulatorily does the exact same thing, you could say that he can respond to that, well, actually, you know, I don't. Everything is just heavily implied by kind of the blocking. Yeah, he kind of, he covered his own back quite well inadvertently there, didn't he? So he could turn around and just be like, actually, no, you got it wrong. Which is weird because... Some There are quite a few articles online. For example, there's one by IndieWire that actually talks about meta-horror in itself and it counts. Um, the, you can watch these meta-horror films after you've watched Scream. And in their description of funny games, it says that Hanukkah, and, you know, he remade the film in 2007 and he made it even bloodier and even gorier. And I was like, have you seen this film, honestly? <laughs> because that's just not what yeah, happened. Yeah, where's the gore? So I went in, I just saw that on that list and I thought okay, like this is going to be an even harder watch than the first one because I watched them almost back to back, Mm. which was in itself quite, that was quite intense. But I was surprised when it turned out to just be genuinely frame for frame and it wasn't amped up in any sense. So yeah, as you say, it, it, it works very much in the same vein as Hanukkah's general hatred for this Um, really gratuitous quasi-pornographic on-screen violence that gives you that kind of release through blood and guts, you know, that catharsis almost, like we've mentioned that before. You shouldn't have done that, Anne. (laughs) 
day fell through the night. <laughs> that's awesome, really, really. And I think that's something that's really interesting, actually, about how you say there seem to be multiple kind of reviews and recaps of this film, which act like it's this super gory, like, fest of blood and violence, when that's just not the case. It's violent, but it's not gory, and there's a crucial distinction. Mm. And I think the fact that there seems to be, for some reason, this consistent repetition of, oh, yeah, it's really gory, like, online, when that's just not true, you could say that that is kind of perhaps a weird kind of projection on the part of people. Absolutely. And kind of, again, proving Hanukkah's point. It's like you kind of misremember it as much gorier than it actually is because that's the film that mm. you want to have seen. And I did actually find myself quite weirdly, actually, when I was watching the first, the 1997 one, I was thinking... I'm waiting for the gore. Okay, there's a little patch of there's a little patch of blood on George's trouser from where he got whacked with the club. Yeah. Where's the where's the when's the more yeah. yeah. When's it gonna get bloodier? When's it gonna get gorier? And I was just there the whole time and then I looked at myself and I was like, What are you doing? What's wrong with me? <laughs> Honestly, what have I become? Are they not suffering enough? Honestly, because the bit when Georgie dies mm. is probably the most blood spattered bit but of, as you said it happens off screen which really amplifies the sense of nihilism and cynicism mm. that runs through the the underbelly of the film itself where you have paul just making a sandwich you know and even he calls back to the the living room where they're performing this counting game to see who's going to get shot with the shotgun and paul just goes oh does anyone want anything from the fridge you know so there's this real juxtaposition of tones there and that in itself feeds into this idea of violence becoming more casual. Mm. But then when we come back to the living room and we see what's happened and we see the the body of Georgie on the floor, it's startlingly disturbing for its under-sensationalized depiction. It's just there. Where you just have his his you have his little legs just kind of poking out from behind the TV. Yeah. And then this big stain on the wall and they have the TV still running for a long time while a couple are recovering. It's just silence apart from this rally racing going on on the TV and the TV itself is soaked in blood and it's running down the, the, the front of the glass. And that in itself is quite a good metaphor for what Hanukkah's trying to get at. Yeah, here. absolutely. And I actually read someone saying a letterbox review, which I thought made a lot of sense and I agreed with, was um, that, so you know the scene where Anne and George are kind of hugging and embracing afterwards. It's kind of yeah. like, it's a very long scene. Well, it's about five minutes, would you say? Which is, which is in itself, in terms of screen time, that yeah. is... And age, it's a, isn't yeah, it? it's a sizable chunk. And I think actually, and this person on Letterboxd kind of pointed out when all that is happening, at first it's sad. And then after a while, you kind of go, okay, yes, we get it. They're really sad. Mm. Da, da, da. Okay, when are we going to get back to the killing? You know, when are we going to get back to Peter and Paul, who are kind of essentially, in a weird way, the heroes of the film, despite them yeah. being the ones who are obviously enacting all this violence? They're the ones that we want to see. And we do kind of weirdly root for them. And I thought that was really interesting how the letterbox review pointed out that we've got this really tender moment and also a very realistic moment because this is the, like obviously a lot of violent films, just, you know, like heads getting blasted off left, right and centre and then just kind of immediately move on. When obviously in reality, in real life, every single death leaves behind a family, you know, is the termination of a life, mm. not only a life that has already existed, but say, for example, the removal of the possibility of, say, years in the future, 
And it's actually a very solemn, serious thing. And obviously this scene is a very tender and sad scene. But because Hanukkah draws it out like that, and obviously that's what real life is, grief is drawn out, mm. we as viewers, he really kind of almost about us even realising, he manages to extract out of us that kind of bloodlust of, okay, yeah, sad, get a bit bored now. Can yeah. we, you know, can we pick it up, guys? Pick up the pace. And I think that's really effective in uh, kind of constructing the viewer as kind of desensitised for you. And you feel kind of dirty, like, as a result of that. And... The the depiction of the recovery of this couple, well, what you can call a recovery, I mean, Jesus, it's it's grim. Uh, you have just these little details and the acting itself is incredible. Like, it's very strong in terms of the performances. But you have uh, Anne, played by Naomi Watts. She shuts the door of the living room, do you remember? And she, she can't help but just vomit through her mm. fingers as she does so because she's so overcome by just like the absolute horror of what's happened and you have George her husband breaking down in this kind of hysterical panting crying which sounded really guttural it almost reminded me of um in Hereditary where you have those extended sequences of um Annie the main protagonist grieving and she's just letting out these kind of inhuman sounds sounds that we're just not used to really hearing in mainstream depictions of reactions to death. And Hanukkah really captured that. And I think actually in a way, the 1997 one was more, maybe it hit home more because I saw that one before the 2007 one. But the way that the father was crying was just relentless and frightening because it just sent chills through you, you know? And because it's not the kind of stereotyped symbolic scream that we've gotten so used to and comfortable with and the kind of scream and the kind of grief that, for example, Cabin in the Woods would propound uh, in the form of, for example, when Jules's head is thrown through the door by the raised corpse of the pioneer man and it's caught by her friend and she just sort of, she's holding the decapitated head of her friend. And she, she of course she screams and cries, but then she's just sort of like, she moves on, you know, she gets on with the plot, which in itself is meant to be tongue in cheek, isn't it? But it's just worlds away, honestly. And it shows you how broad and how insanely divorced cinema and, you know, violence in cinema has become from everyday life um, violence and, and suffering. Do you think that the heroes of the film then are the family or Peter and Paul? There is a bit where Paul actually mentions, oh, they're rooting for you. And he sort of gestures towards the camera. It's true in a sense, because we we first arrive with the family. We spend a lot of time with Anne, don't yeah. we? And I think we're sort of meant to perceive Anne as the protagonist. But at the same time, you have these two men just start committing these relentless acts of violence and sadism to this unsuspecting, guiltless family. And I suppose in a way they do metaphorically stand for the mechanics of the film itself, pushing the plot forwards. So in a sense, they're less characters and more of a, of a device mm. to, to execute the violence that we're longing for as viewers. 
at the same time as trying to to push the idea that we're meant to be relying on Anne and George to somehow find a way out of this predicament and somehow fight back, which is made even more interesting when Anne grabs the shotgun from the coffee table and shoots Peter dead. But then you have that intervention from Paul when he rewinds the film itself, the film we are watching, and then restarts it to change the timeline and make sure that she doesn't get the gun. So I think that traversal, that kind of bouncing in between of commenting on the process and the sort of narrative that's meant to unfold and is expected to unfold within the film, calling it out and even describing it as such you know, in front of our protagonists, at the same time as denying outright those resolutions and those progressions, and the fact that the film itself kind of hovers in this sort of plotless space in a way, there aren't those beats that you seem to expect coming out of the work. You know, you have these really extended sequences of depicted suffering that don't function in the way that you expect them to. And, and I suppose in that sense, it's constantly making you wonder rather like allowing you to side with anyone in particular, it's more making you reconsider why you should be or the mechanics of why you would be wanting to side with anyone in the first place whether it's for and indeed the mechanics of why are you even watching in the first place which is squarely what he he aims to do with both films something i also thought was really interesting that you said before about um how you're like oh you know peter and paul they're kind of barely they're barely characters they're more narrative devices and i also thought that was interesting with how hanukkah kind of highlights that with that conversation quite early on in the hostage taking where Paul's like, oh, well, you know, you know, Peter's just like this because and he just rattles off this list of completely contradicting yeah. excuses. Like, oh yeah, he's just insane. He's just like a total sadist. It's like, oh, well actually, you know, his dad left when he was a kid and now he's gay and now he takes it out on everyone. And yeah. he's like, oh, and you know, he's just, he's just upset because he's tubby. And then he's like, don't call me tubby, etc. But as in, it's funny because it seems at the start like kind of an attempt to, you know, humanise him and be like, why, why would two nice young men do something like that? What could possibly drive them to? And it originally takes you down that path and all of a sudden you realise you're being played because it's all a complete joke and there's so many layers yeah. of lies and contradictions that actually in giving character background to Peter, he ends up with no character background at all. We have no... We're still none the wiser, despite all these alternative explanations constantly being offered. And I suppose to some extent you could also say that in a weird way also kind of reflects kind of real life debates about violence, about how there are so many mm. competing narratives kind of in the media for what you know, why why does violence in society still exist? What is it mm. that drives people to do these things? And these different layers all just kind of converge on top of one another into a big void of nothing and we're still none the wiser. And it's interesting as well to think about the fact that nowadays we live in a world that is so much less violent than it used mm. to be technically. But of course we're given the we're given the sense that violence is perpetual and we're surrounded by it and the currency yeah. of blood and guts and gore by the presence of the media and that that is you know very much the basis of Hanukkah's argument for um a cinema that seeks to um place 
the viewer within these very real, very inescapably real moments of violence. And you can definitely relate that to the way that that funny games almost dismantles the idea of story utterly in the sense that if you think about what story is very foundationally, it is um, a character who has strong motivation, who then experiences, you know, conflict in mm. trying to fulfill a goal you know but this film is utterly goalless in terms and it's meant to be you know and the very fact that as you said that we go through this rigmarole of hearing all the different conflicting parodical background um stories for these two people just getting churned out like that almost as if we're in the writer's mm. room of of something like cabin in the woods you know where they're going yeah they need to be you know they need to be a junkie they need to be disturbed or maybe they were abused when they were young you know um and it's like you're hearing that voice of the of of story you know with a capital s coming out at you and it's denied and denied again and again and again and we're never given that sense of motivation it's it's starved of motivation deliberately as mm, a film and i think what's also interesting about that is that ultimately at the end of the day and this is perhaps also a criticism of the way that kind of story is constructed. It does feel to some extent kind of like excuse making for certain characters. And obviously in the film, it makes no difference to Anne and George and Georgie because, you know, they don't care what the reasons are. But they're already in this situation. It's too late for them. Although, although they do keep asking that classic horror line of why are you doing this yeah which in itself takes on this strangely humorous tone doesn't it Mm. even though they're in this awful predicament you do part of you wants to laugh i mean the title of the film is funny games yeah i don't know and it's called funny games the original version is also called funny games right it's not got a german title as far as i'm aware i think it's just called funny games it's even it's an english language title in the german release and so exactly i think the fact that that is the title at all even in german so just so no one can accuse us you know of being like eh, well actually um funny in german can have you know multiple different <laughs> meanings and it wasn't meant in a humorous sense you know just to avoid any of that yeah so we as native english speakers understand what funny games i hope so means. obviously funny can have two meanings it can mean strange and it can also mean comedic and i think you know that's probably deliberate um, and in games as well obviously kind of implies a non-seriousness a joviality and obviously that is also one of the other crucial aspects of the film the fact that the hostage taking is punctuated by these constant kind of almost meaningless games that they're forced to play seemingly for literally no reason other than the entertainment of peter and paul and and us arguably I think as well, that is a really crucial part of the film. The fact that there is that layer of humour, even in the face of such an unthinkably horrible situation, we're kind of encouraged to laugh to a certain extent and to not really take everything completely seriously because we kind of can't. We have been so desensitised to everything into violence not only do we actively weirdly want more of it but in our psyches we kind of see it almost as an amusement and as a laugh hi georgie don't come any closer 
cock it. Pull the hammer back. What you said about um, the idea of the games, you know, and the sort of the very the, the real aimlessness of the games themselves really relates quite surprisingly in a way to the marketing of the film and the way that if you read a lot of the uh, the copy for the film online, you notice that whoever's marketing the film has tried to pick up on the idea of the sadistic set of games as the kind of core plot device. The, the, the meat of the film, as it were, is this set of games that's, pre that's presented to the, to the family and they're forced to play. A bit like Saw, I guess. Because in horror in general, you have these tropes of, I want to play a game. And uh, this grim fascination that emerges from us. Well, if you think about Squid Game, for example, it's literally that. It's the idea of a group of these people, then you watch them as they suffer through this sequence of really elaborately designed and sadistically crafted challenges. And that absolutely chimes with this film as a subversion of the home invasion thriller where you have films like The Strangers, I don't know, and then that entire franchise and how it's predicated on this idea, this very marketable idea of watch a family get put through their paces and watch the watch the stakes become higher and higher because that in itself is the idea of a plot where it, every round it's it's like a game in itself and there are setbacks or there are small victories and then that all leads to a bigger climax that then resolves the game the bigger game of the of the film so i suppose funny games can then stand as a metaphor for films in general mm. i think also something about the game aspect in particular on the one hand it does kind of stand for kind of arbitrariness and kind of unfairness mm. but on the other hand i also think especially and i think that's why things like squid game are so popular they are also in a weird way kind of oddly reassuring to viewers because they kind of allow viewers to imagine themselves being in the same situation and having a certain level of agency and being capable okay. for example of kind of averting their fate by you know playing the game correctly and winning and i think there's that also kind of reassuring element of them you can't help but think oh what would i do in this situation yeah. and i definitely felt myself thinking that when i was watching this this film i was about to say this game <laughs> ah, yikes um i caught myself thinking oh, what would i do how would i get them out the house oh maybe i would just really play along with it to the extent that they got bored do you know what i mean i'd be like yeah like let's do that woo i love it and i'd be like clapping my hands and going like yeah <laughs> And I think they'd be a bit freaked out by you. I think they wouldn't really know yeah, what to think of it. Maybe you could just sort of scare them away by being like so into it. But then the whole point of these men is that they're these soulless, blank slates of nihilistic mm. intention where they just have no motivation, no concerns. All they want is they don't want anything. And that's the horror. Do you think it? as well the fact, sorry, you just, you mentioned how they're kind of like soulless blank slates. I've just realized again with like the costuming. And like the white gloves and the white outfits. Yeah, yeah that makes complete white. sense. Everything's just all white. 
and you know just just ready to be like a canvas ready to get splattered with blood yes yes and that goes for the the set design of the the house as well in both mm. films it's this blanched interior which is almost as you say primed quite cynically as well and quite in a, in quite a tongue in cheek manner for the blood that will then be spilt and the way that the camera guides you around the space at the beginning of the film it's there to sort of show you in a in a self-aware way mm. oh look at this you see this interior now well it's going to be covered in blood and guts and gore in a bit you know and you're going to love it <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you're waiting for you're just waiting you're waiting for this blank canvas of a film to get dirtied and messed up and just in the same way that you're waiting for this house to just get soaked in the blood of these poor innocents <laughs> sorry i got a bit intense there. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> um i have a question for you yes go on so <laughs> <wait. laughs> yeah <laughs> looking forward for, to the question well you should be because it's a great question i just need to find it <laughs> So having this 2007 film and the 1997 film in existence, having them be separate texts in in of themselves, but then also creating a joint text when they they kind of merge and sit together, that creates a whole new text, you know, meta, like an intertextual relationship going on. What do you think that does for um, the international aspects of the filming projects and the, the the idea of foreign audience versus a sort of homogenous English-speaking audience. What do you mm. think? Well, I think there's obviously the fact that you have to take into account, which is that at the end of the day, making a film in American with American... <laughs> in American. American. <laughs> in America, in English. <laughs> oh, let me start again. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. The sound waves, the sound waves are peaking. Um, okay. Well, I think obviously the reality is, and this is just business, that making a film in America in English with kind of like internationally recognised actors is, at the end of the day, a more, um, should we say, profitable way to get your, not just profitable, but also profitable. Actually, I just realised it's profitable. I've been pronouncing it like profiteroles. <laughs> profitable. Not just profitable. And I say profitable, I don't mean in terms of directorial intentions, but, you know, obviously it's hard to even get a film made in the first place. You know, oh, yeah. you have to get funding, so on. Um, but also in terms of reach, um, it's going to have a lot more reach in an American context. And I suppose also you could arguably... Again, I feel like I keep on making these kinds of points every single week. I'm always talking about the American film industry and it's kind of like chokehold on the rest of the world. Just own it. You hate it, don't you? No, I don't hate it. But also, you could say that, obviously, if you accept the premise that the film is meant to be a kind of critique of the normalisation of media violence Mm. and kind of the way it desensitises the viewer and encourages us to become kind of almost sadistic voyeurs. You could say, well, arguably a lot of the blame for that has to go on, say, for example, again, the American film industry. Hollywood. On Hollywood. Not even necessarily in terms of like the horror genre. In fact, not all necessarily in terms of the horror genre. I would say violence is normalised much more through things like war movies action heroes etc i actually think they do much more to contribute to the normalization of violence than horror films do but um yeah i think arguably it does make 
more sense to kind of set the film in America. But I also kind of, as you say, love the fact that the Austrian version did get made first because it kind of adds this new textual layer of kind of like kind of literally putting what I was just talking about earlier and kind of the kind of benefits for kind of reach and profits of making a film in America. I mean, it kind of literally embodies them, the fact that a remake was made at all. And and when you say set in America, it's quite interesting. Be- I need to stop saying interesting. I need to think of a different word to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you're watching the Austrian original and then you watch the American original, I was also anticipating this, you know, how are they going to, do their own little bit of, you know, glocalization. How are they going to adapt it to the context of America, American culture, as opposed to the Austrian version where, of course, they'd be, they'd be embedded in the, the Austrian context. But then you realise that it's frame for frame. There's little to no change mm. regarding the context, regarding that everything stays very surface level amorphous nothing's everything's very genericized so the only real changes are things like the name of the dog you know so in the austrian version he's called rolfi in the american version he's called lucky and that in itself plays into the film's message of we want this to be as universal a viewing experience as possible you know as yeah something that appeals to the human experience rather than any experience through the lens of culture, which I know is fundamentally impossible. You can't have this sort of, I'd say that's partly the issue with Hanukkah's theories about violence and media in general, but you can't have this sort of essentialized, that's a very modernist Mm. take. I think the idea that you can scrape away or reach back to this very um, fundamental untouched version of something. Could you argue could you argue that you know especially like parts of western europe have become kind of so homogenized by kind of american mass media that the point is yeah barely any localization other than the literal language and names is needed but he, and then he but then you he know, does american reverse capitalism that. is everywhere yeah exactly like globally exported um but then he flips it back again the fact that as you said he does the austrian version first is fascinating in of itself because it then turns the tables in a way back on American culture and it makes it makes the American version an adaptation of the Austrian version in turn so there's there's more of a reciprocal relationship going on than rather just a relentless you know linear like America to the rest of the world relationship that's true as well it's almost like a cyclical kind of reinforcement going on you know oh cracked there um and didn't you think it was quite cool that I don't know whether he intended this or not, but Naomi Watts, right? She had just done, well, she hadn't just done, but she'd done the 2002 American yeah, I think the word adaptation of The is Ring. She's doing a lot of work there. Five years previously. Yeah. <laughs> Five- yes. <laughs> she just stepped <laughs> off the production. But don't you think that in itself is this extra layer of, of, um, sort of cynical commentary on Hanukkah's no, yeah, part? Yeah, I definitely see that. Hello. Hello. Sorry to disturb you. I'm staying next door. I saw you earlier at the gate. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, Please, come in. So, how can I help you? Tell your dad we're eating in ten minutes! Well, Eve's... I I mean, 
Mrs. Thompson sent me. She's cooking and she ran out of eggs and asked if he could help her out. Of course. How many does she need? Four. Four? What for? Excuse me? What for? What does she need the eggs for? I mean, what's she cooking? Oh, I have no idea. You have Naomi Watts once again by this director put in this place of acting as the kind of generic Hollywood body double for the foreign original film that's then being... Um, in this case, it's not so, even though, you know, commentators online would have you think otherwise saying, oh, it's all blood and guts and gore now. But she's being, she's the vessel for the, um, the, the, the Americanization, the, the almost added layer of homogenization that's, that's happening to the film. And what happened with The Ring, for example, is it got stripped of cultural specificity and, um, and a sense of localization you have the context of Japan and the setting of Japan and the whole connection to Japanese folklore in that film, but then it all gets scraped clean and then rehoused within this American context. And it's all adjusted to fit in and for her, for her place as the protagonist, the investigator, to be confirmed and justified. So I think it's so cool that Hanukkah I guess he, he must have known that. He must have seen that and thought, I can make a statement by asking Naomi what's to be in this film, which is going to end up doing something almost parallel, but very mm. different in the sense that it's not going to be stripped of its specificity there is no because specificity. there is no specificity yes. to begin with. Yeah. So it's a kind of like a, oh, got you there <laughs> kind of thing going on, isn't it? So one thing that I thought would be an interesting thing to discuss is the way in which Peter and Paul kind of try to justify their actions. Obviously, we've already discussed how there is no real justification because we're kind of given no real reason for their motivation. But beyond Peter and Paul themselves, they actually kind of put the onus on the family. Mm. And they say, well, you know, you guys brought it on yourselves. What do you think? Shouldn't about, have slapped him. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think they brought it on themselves? Why do you think? And what do you think as well about the specificity of the fact that they're targeting rich families with like lake houses? It's a weird one because it, again, it all feeds into that idea of looking for a sort of spectre of motivation in the characters, where their their sheer essence is the fact that they don't have motivation. So I think part part of it is to sow the seeds, that temptation in the viewer to really scramble to conclusions and to try and fill in the gaps mm. and to create a kind of a roundness to it, you know, seal it off and um, and get that sense of satisfaction um, that is given to you in a film when plot threads are tied off and details are given and characters are shaped out like that. But I guess in giving that quite bare-boned mandate of of moving from just one family to the next and this kind of relentless chain causing this suffering again and again and again it's weird because it wants you to sort of feel for the edges and like ply a sense of motivation out of these characters once again but it's it it, it helps to have you experience that denial once more it's like you're getting slapped on the hand by Hanukkah you know you're like reaching for something and he's like no <laughs> Um, but I think you could also say something for the fact that obviously they kind of come dressed up almost as kind of like golf caddies and their kind of initial 
introduction to the family is kind of like it's like service workers who are like helping out at their you know lovely holiday homes and they're like just you know going to borrow some eggs for the other family do you think there is anything Mm. to that the fact that they start off in this kind of very subordinate position of working as service and then they kind of keep demanding more and more from the rich families until the rich families are like look go away leave us alone and then that's when they turn on them on one hand there's this sort of essence of a kind of class commentary going on there even though you know that these two men are like they are quite high class themselves they're you know privileged in that respect but there's sort of a polarity of the audience wanting to to see the privileged family get thrown into this state of chaos and suffering which i think is it, you can say that for a lot of films for example like i know us and you're next and even to a certain extent as well things like knives out where you have this really wealthy privileged group of people or family and their um their life is sort of thrown into a state of disarray by an event and part of you wants to root for this sort of this unraveling of their existence and you want to promote that in a way and kind of be like yeah do it but even that detail is compromised by the fact that these men appear to be privileged in of themselves it's not made complete and it's kind of a, it's like denied completion, isn't it? But then at the same time as that, the egg scene is so unbearable because you just, you literally with everything, you just want him to get out of the house, you know, how dare you ask for more eggs? And, and when he's like, oh yeah, just give us the eggs or we'll like, you know, we'll break your eggs. And it's just like, oh my God. Wow. That's a really great set of clubs. <laughs> Callaway, right? Awesome. <laughs> these are these are wonderful. May I? I guess we don't stand a chance tomorrow, do we? The club doesn't make the player. That's true. Would you mind if I tried this? Just once, please. Real quick, outside, please. Yes, I'll I'll hit it towards the bay. Yes, if it makes you happy. I think there is a kind of tension in what the family represent here, personally, because on the one hand, they do kind of represent this nice, cozy sphere of like love and domesticity that's kind of like being infringed upon by these like outsiders with bad intentions and on the one hand we are kind of encouraged to root aside with the family in that respect because they're the ones whose kind of like space is being violated but then I think also there is this kind of appeal I think it is very deliberate that like this is not just a random family living at home this is a wealthy family going to a beautiful lakeside house and the fact that Peter and Paul first appear as people kind of like working in the service of another wealthy family I do still think that that fact is really important and that kind of Hanukkah is probably deliberately trying to get that kind of tension within the viewer of on the one hand completely understanding where Anne is coming from because she is being reasonable in the way that she deals with Paul and she is I repeat, sorry. And she is like obviously 
having her space infringed upon. But I do think Hannah Cruz is also trying to perhaps coax out of us this kind of hidden desire to kind of see this family like get taken down a peg or two at the same time. And I think the fact that this these two feelings coexist at once is what you were saying, yeah, about the fact that there aren't neat answers and there aren't neat resolutions. It kind of appeals to the kind of nasty core of yourself. And ultimately, in that sense, making it more quote-unquote real as a cinematic experience in the way that Hanukkah was intending, I suppose. And do you think that this film succeed? well, these films, manage to achieve what he's wanting to achieve? I, hmm. Sorry, that's no, no, two no, questions. <laughs> On the question of violence in the media, I don't think that violence is caused by any real form of media. I think violence can be inspired by media, which is a very different thing. When I say inspiration, I mean, for example, kind of like the nature of the... Because, like, for example, it is true that, say, um, members of the Italian mafia, and I know this because I've obviously read a lot about it, there are a lot of members of the Italian mafia used to be, like, obsessed with, like, the Godfather, for example, and, like, tried to model themselves off. And they really kind of, like, thought that that was, like, what they were doing. Yeah. And so I definitely think there is a way in which violence in media inspires violence in real life and people mm. kind of want... They're kind of so wrapped up. And this doesn't... It's isn't just a case of just violence either. I think this is a case for a lot of things in real life now that mm. kind of bled into life from media. I think people are kind of so wrapped up in, like, viewing their own lives as we kind of talked about in the censor episode, in kind of like a filmic language. I mean, you even see it now on TikTok with like, oh, main character syndrome, romanticise your life, etc. I definitely think there is an element of inspiration, yes, then, from media. Mm. But I don't think that it is true that you can say, and this would never have happened if, you know, these violent pieces of media weren't available you know, for the children to watch and have their young minds corrupted by. A la Mary Whitehouse. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think that media kind of can refract the forms that violence actually is committed in, but it doesn't cause violence. Sorry, sorry if that's too nuanced of you. No. <laughs> well, actually, to be fair, I need to think about that even more, to be fair. I'm still not 100% committed to that. But that's what I would say right now. Where does that leave you with funny games? With funny games? I don't know. I do kind of see it because... And I also think as well, to be fair, I've been speaking about actually the perpetrators of violence in my answer. But then even us as kind of consumers of violent-related violent media violent media as consumers of violent media it does perhaps also i think partly inform our attitudes to violence perpetrated by others towards others perhaps and i think it does desensitize us Mm. and what the consequences of that are i'm still not entirely sure on desensitizes us to the extent that we as horror film podcasters chose this film 
And that, you know, we looked at it and we thought, oh, is this film like violent enough? Is it ghastly yeah. enough? <laughs> is it horrific enough to qualify as a film that we could then watch and talk about giving all the lurid details, um, tarting up the the plot summary to the extent that it would like be titillating for our listeners? You know, in that sense, it kind of feels like almost this film itself has been consumed by that mm. tradition of violence and it's become subject to just like another layer another level that of of distance that's put between us and the genuine idea of violence in of itself Mm. i think hanukkah is slightly naive in thinking that you can so easily get to this idea of violence real violence and then put it in front of viewers and then go like yeah like see you see and then like your reaction to this defines whether you are either you're in need of this or you already know and you'll like walk out as he as he said before and he hoped that people would walk out of the film because they would understand the meaning you know yeah. or whatever and but i do think that na- that there is that naivety in the sense that you can so easily stand above the the currents of culture you know the film does and it has been pointed out so much and i feel like i won't go into it too much but you know people have criticized the film's sort of moralizing aspects and the fact that it, it does border on the didactic sometimes which may, does make it slightly less compelling i do agree but i really don't think it's that much of a problem and i think it handles that in quite a it handles it in quite an elegant way but and i don't think a lot of people have pointed this out but like the the film's remake even though it does give the film a platform to then be watched and viewed and consumed by a broader range of people um, across the world and to have more of an impact culturally it does place even more distance between the viewer and the violence especially when you watch them consecutively as I did where you watched one film and then it was all coloured by this strange like irony this strange cynicism and just absurd humour of it all where you're watching the same film just with these different characters happening again and frame for frame it was even more absurd even more ridiculous seeming and the very act of replicating the film did even more to frame it as a constructed, devised, and ultimately um, cinematic object that you can't that is 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 it like ineffably distant and inaccessible regarding real experience and the and the real world as it stands. Well, for now, I guess that about wraps up our discussion of Funny Games. It's a really fascinating film. There is so much to talk about. But at the end of the day, if we had said every single thing that we wanted to say about it, this (laughs) podcast episode would have probably ended up longer than the actual film itself. But don't worry, because next week we will be back with another episode in our Meta Horror series. And this time we're going to be covering the iconic Scream. Ah! (laughs) So obviously we can't wait to see you there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And yeah, don't forget to subscribe and remember to stay safe. Bye-bye.